I V M. Genetics. What can it mean? The ability to perfect the physical and mental characteristics of every unborn child. In the not too distant future, our DNA will determine everything about us. Ethan Hawke. Uma Thurman. Welcome to Gattaca. In 1997, the movie Gattaca imagined a dystopian world where the rich could make their genes perfect and the poor were pushed further down in society. 20 years later, we are nowhere close to perfecting our genes, but new technologies like CRISPR have made gene editing very powerful. Are we heading towards eugenics? Or are we about to make amazing breakthroughs that will cure all genetic diseases? Either way, can India meaningfully participate in this field? Welcome to the Pragati Podcast, and we are your hosts, Pavan Shrinath and Hamsini Hariharan. Joining us to discuss gene editing and its governance are Shambhavi Nayak and Madhav Chandavarkar. Shambhavi has a PhD in cancer biology from the University of Leicester, has a life sciences startup called CloudCreate, and has been studying public policy at Takshashila. Madhav is a lawyer and a research associate at the Takshashila Institution. Shambhavi, I last studied biology when I was in class ten. So, can you take a step back and explain to me what gene editing is? It is basically a process by which we are changing genes slightly. So that the outcome, which is a characteristic. So, if you have a gene for blue eyes, take one more step back. What okay. is a gene? What is a gene? Right. So, think about genes. Think about DNA as alphabets, and so genes are sentences which basically show a characteristic. Right. Okay. So they are present in all of your cells and all of the living organisms. Believe me or not, naturally grown tomato also has genes. Okay, it is not just GMO food which has genes. Naturally grown tomato also has genes. Um, so they basically code for all the proteins in your body, and the proteins then give you the physical, mental, and all characteristics that you have. So if you have blue eyes, you have a genetic code that determines the color of your eyes. The DNA code is basically always only in four alphabets: A, T, G, and C. But uh, for simplicity, let's think of The English alphabets, right? All right. So, if you have blue eyes, then you have a code that says that I have blue eyes. If I have black eyes, I have a code that says that I have black eyes. So that's where the codes are different because the way the alphabets are arranged is different. Right. With, And every time any organisms made to reproduce, uh, you have um, genes that are changing here and there, mixing in new ways and so on. But all this is happening naturally. Yes. And therefore we are sort of okay with it. And even naturally there are problems, there are abnormalities, people have to suffer from disorders. So is an intervention in this dangerous? Well, um intervention can be controlled and controlled intervention is actually good. It is something that we require um for example, let me take hypothetical example completely of horse racing. Okay. Right? So uh, if I have a horse farm obviously it's an extremely expensive business to manage. Uh so I want to cut down on costs. Uh but I still want my horses to be of a particular quality and strength. Uh the way I think of cutting down on cost is by making horses eat less food but get the same amount of energy. 
Alright, so, so make them efficient in yes. some way. So basically change their metabolism a little bit. What I can do with gene editing is figure out other animals who might have better metabolism because their genes are slightly different, that sequence is slightly different. And then using the current gene editing technologies, try and get that gene into my horses and see what I get. And there's a good chance that I'll get a horse which has the same strength but eats less food. Uh, is that tampering? Well, uh, back in 3000 BC, nobody really knew about gene editing, but they just bred a horse and a donkey together. And what we have is a mule. A mule, which has the characteristics of a horse, but is as less as a donkey. And so we have been using it worldwide very efficiently. So humans have, in that sense, been manipulating the genetic, genetic. Uh, composition of animals and other creatures for a long time. Yes. Right. Even whenever, even human beings engage in selective breeding, right? Yes. When you, uh, I think now evolutionarily, we are programmed to sort of like certain characteristics. For example, symmetry. Uh, is a sense that your genes are by and large healthy, right? Uh, asymmetry can mean some disorder somewhere, even if that correlation is weak. Yes. Uh, so, and this is most predominantly seen in dogs, right? A lot of the dogs that we see today are actually hybrids, which we have created artificially. Right. And so, dogs seem to be these enormously plastic beings, right? I mean, there is so much variation from something that can fit in your pocket to something that's as tall as you. Yes, yes. So, uh, there was this company in China which has been trying to make pigs, which you can also get to choose the coat color from. They have stopped the project for now, okay. but there was actually feasible where you can get a designer pig. So, from breeding animals and maybe even plants, uh, how did the whole field of genetics evolve? So, uh, it's very interesting because breeding plants was where genetics actually started. So, okay. uh these were experiments done back in the 18th century by Gregor Mendel, who was an abbot, uh, but in his free time wanted to see how plants develop characteristics. So he did a series of experiments with pea plants, mm -hmm. uh, trying to get dwarf or tall pea plants. And he came up with the laws of inheritance. And that was the first laying foundation that characteristics can be transferred from generation to generation. And the basic laying of was to become genetics as a field. And so so this idea that certain traits are inheritable and you can manipulate in them in some way preceded the discovery of the DNA by quite a while. Yes, because this was still early 18th century and the DNA was discovered much later on. So uh, before that, the fact that DNA was the molecule that was being inherited was experiments that were a very macloid, um, followed by actual understanding of the DNA helix in 1953 by Watson and Creek. So that is still quite a recent discovery uh, if you look at the years that we have spent. Right. And probably after that discovery, we've seen this growth in biological research, right? I mean, the last 50, 60 years, if you, uh, apart from maybe the development of computer science and software and um, uh, programming, uh, biological research has probably seen the most dynamism out there, right? Yes. Right from the uh, understanding that DNA was the inherent um, molecule, Mm -hmm. to actually figuring out what the functions of each and every gene are uh, has taken only about 50 years. Uh, so the Human Genome Project was started in 1990 and by 2003, uh, we had sequenced the entire human genome uh, and understood... For a crazy amount of money, right? Yeah, that was about $2.7 billion for the first sequence. Mm -hmm. uh, so this was back in early 2000s. Right. Um, How are we doing now? 
So the latest uh, machine that has come out from Illumina uh, does the same thing for about a hundred dollars. So, so that, from two point <laughs> yeah, that's been a seven billion to hundred dollars. Yes. So yes. that's also case for government investment in high quality scientific research, right? Because that initial investment and maybe the early pioneers who want to get their own uh, genome sequenced have paved the way for making this uh, entire technology so affordable today. Yes, and it's also uh, an argument for why we need to encourage research, uh, you know, basic science research into these fields because the only way to bring down uh, costs for innovation is to make sure that there are a lot of people involved in it and there is a favorable atmosphere uh, for them to progress. Right. Okay, so let's get back. So we had Mendel, we had the discovery of the DNA. Um, how? What happened with genetic engineering since? So with the discovery of the DNA uh, and, and understanding of what genes do, right? The next thing that scientists wanted to do was figure out if they can take DNA from one cell and put it into another cell. Because imagine if you want to have wings of a bird or the gills of a fish and you could just take the genes out and put it somewhere else. That would be crazy fun, right? So uh, the first experiment in this was done by Paul Berg. Uh, and this was in the 1970s uh, where he took a part of a DNA out of a virus. So this was a virus in a, that caused cancer in a monkey. And okay. he took it out of that virus and tried to put it in E. coli bacteria. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he managed to lice open the cell, get the DNA out. He managed to fuse the two bits of DNA together. But then he stopped short of actually putting the DNA back into the E. coli. The reason is that E. coli is extremely uh, dominant in nature. It is found it's everywhere. everywhere. It's inside your body as well. And so the basic question is that if now it has this virus genome that can cause cancer in monkeys, if that E. coli escapes laboratories, can it go and cause cancers, you know, in the laboratory personnel or outside? And so he stopped short of actually putting the DNA back into the E. coli. So you have science that's marching on at breakneck speed. You have some governmental conversations which also happen at their own pace. What were the scientists discussing? Scientists did have a culture of vibrant debates on what is going on with this, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, So... Uh, Paul Berg, who Shambi mentioned, uh, so was one of the pioneers in recombinant DNA research. Uh, his re- research was actually widely reported uh, and became a sort of news item. So uh, scientists sort of came to the realization that they couldn't have these isolated insular discussions within themselves. Uh, and they needed to uh, aggregate in a group, uh, arrive at a position and then sort of broadcast that. Uh, not only to sort of assuage uh, public fears, but also to prevent hard government interventions. So uh, he organized a conference of uh, scientists uh, and I think ethicists and lawyers as well, though they were in the minority, uh, in uh, Asilomar, which is in uh, California. And they came out with uh, a bunch of principles as to how the community should best proceed with scientific research. And uh, these were all uh, based on what is uh, called the precautionary principle. So they came up with it there or they applied it in a big way. They applied it in a big way. Uh, I have deep-seated concerns with the precautionary principle. I, I mean, like, it's possible that the pace of innovation was much higher when people were not invoking things like the precautionary principle. But that that's me. The precautionary principle will slow down the, the pace of innovation and research. But uh, 
the question uh, especially with something like gene editing is uh, as shami mentioned if it escapes the lab uh, it's very very hard to reverse it so uh, having uh, some caution while proceeding with the research i think is a good thing and uh, they came up with multiple ways in which they could uh, enforce that some of which were biological in terms of what kind of uh, cells could be edited and others were uh, non biological in terms of uh, containment standards in laboratories and those have now become uh, industry standards right i think in the past containment was largely around infectious diseases like smallpox or polio but now containment seems to have gotten a larger mandate yeah because now we are actually creating and engineering organisms that are outside the purview of what would be uh, created through natural process uh, so it is extremely difficult uh, to understand how the environment might respond to them and how they would respond to an environment which is why uh, the idea of having recall or to control how you release and keep on monitoring them at all points of time is extremely important from the 1970s to now i'm sure that we have understood a lot more about how our proteins and cells and genes work and how these things relate to the functions that we see in various organisms but what else has improved in the last 40 to 50 years the actual process of editing genes uh, so we started off uh, right at the beginning with the ancient egyptians and even with mendel where we were still breeding uh that has now changed to uh, understanding that the dna is the basis of your inheritance so we started crude ways of uh, changing the dna with irradiation or using chemicals uh to more oh, so you just you just bombard stuff so you just have a bunch of mutations appearing yeah. and uh, then you just see which things you like yes. and then you sort of select them and then you select them precisely from that we have moved on to gene editing itself where over the past few years uh, we have had three or four different techniques uh, where you can selectively choose what gene you want to edit and to what sequence and then put that in uh, a couple of these were called talens and zinc finger nucleases um, the most recent one that has been discovered is called crispr all of these are using naturally occurring proteins and uh, other components so none of these are actually chemical based anymore Uh, but they afford us precision. With CRISPR, we can also see the price of gene editing coming down. From what I gather, it costs about a million dollars for a round of gene therapy, right? And that number might be coming down to about three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars shortly. That's still a lot. So it's currently affordable only to really wealthy people. And uh, that's probably sort of encouraging patients who have sort of well. big pockets to invest in the research or get the research and then invest in it is beneficial because it means more money goes into reducing the costs for people who can't afford it right because with a lot of this kind of work there's a high initial cost but then the and right now you're saying that even with um, uh, crispr even the marginal cost can be a little high because just creating some of these vectors that go and yes. change things yes. are quite expensive and those that are of sufficient quality that you don't use them just in a lab but on a human being uh, right quite yeah. expensive but you, yeah. all those can come down over time dramatically okay so tell me uh, with all this great technology happening what's happening with crispr what kind of human therapies are we seeing so there are two ways you can do this right so let's think about say a blood cancer so uh There have been two kids who have already been uh, cured of uh, a form of blood cancer using 
uh, a technique that requires gene editing. Um, so you can either do this when you figure out that you have blood cancer, right? You cannot possibly do it before. Uh, so uh, what is blood cancer? It is when the sequence does not is not in the correct alphabets. There's, some There's something mutation. wrong, right? Uh, so once you figure that out, if you figure that out uh, at the stage of a zygote, which is the first cell of the baby, of the embryo, uh, you can actually do gene editing there and there. Or you can, if you figure it out in an adult, you can do it in the adult as well. If you do it in the zygote, this is known as germline gene editing. And the thing here is that a single cell has got the sequence that you have edited, which means that all cells of that body will have the edit. And right? this change is inheritable it is inherited. exactly on. and so it will get passed on for generations whereas if you do it in an adult right suppose again blood cancer you can take out this uh, the stem cells from the bone marrow edit them put them back so that will cure the person of the cancer but none of the children will get the edited gene nor will it be seen in any other cells of his body Okay, so if one is inheritable can sort of get into the population versus this is like a cure that will just, you know, fix something that's wrong in one person. The way we should be think about uh, thinking about regulating this or thinking about the ethics of it would be fundamentally different, right? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, in fact, this difference between somatic and germline sort of captures the sort of two broad concerns that most people have with gene editing. One is sort of uh, unintended scientific sort of practical consequences. Side effects, Side but effects. in a grander sense. Yeah, so there's all the stuff we're talking about, it of escaping to the environment, precautionary principle sort of covers those fears. And the other is uh, et the ethical considerations. So uh, eugenics is one in terms of uh, how it could be used to uh, increase inequalities uh, or just... Uh, the ethics of uh, implementing it. So take the example of germline. Uh, there are a lot of people who object to germline edits because uh, of the fact that it affects all the descendants. So uh, it's fine if the person undergoing the procedure has consented to it. Uh, and even if, if it's of his child because parents have uh, the capacity to make decisions for their children, but it affects their children's children and their great-grandchildren and sort of all generations. So the all these generations are growing up with sort of uh, traits to which they have not consented to. And if there are unforeseen side effects to those traits, traits, then that's when the real problem comes. Right? Exactly. I mean, like if somebody cures a good dis uh, genetic disorder in your bloodline, uh, you'll be happy that you don't have it. But the concern comes when something starts going wrong. There was also a parallel debate happening around stem cells, right? In the United States and elsewhere, questions about the sanctity of life, about using embryos for research, when does life start? The whole thing becomes complicated and people become emotive about the issue. Emotive is a good way to describe it because if you look at human civilization in total, we left nature a very long time ago. Uh, ideas like equality and justice have no place in nature where it's survival of the fittest. Or oh, the fact that we live in buildings and not in sort of in the ground and sort of uh, we, we've tampered with, with nature in, in lots of ways. And there's this almost obsession with sort of naturality. And that's backfired in our country with, uh, say, homosexuality. 
because the offense that bans it in the IPC talks about unnatural offenses. And turns out homosexuality is rampant in nature. Exactly. So we're not really thinking about this level-headedly and with all the facts in mind. You've mentioned how a few somatic gene therapies are already out in the market, even if they are still horribly expensive. Beyond this, gene editing therapies have the potential to cure genetic diseases and to cure cancers and maybe even other things someday. What about gene editing technology and plants and animals though? When it comes to plants, we obviously have a plethora of herbicide resistant to famine resistant crops that are all under research. Um, and, and these were coming even before the days of CRISPR and so on. Of course. So, uh, but there was, again, going back to the ethics thing, there was a different kind of ethical argument about forcibly taking a gene outside from a bacteria and putting it into a plant, whereas now we are just changing the, the, the DNA of the plant itself. So, this has. So, this, this is the whole idea of cisgenic versus transgenic yes. organisms. Yes, yes. So, instead and of transgenic, we'll have just more of cisgenic. And I think here the practical and ethical concerns are about things like biodiversity, yes. where you can have an aggressive genetically modified organism which can just take over. The genes can cross over into all kinds, even across species, uh, yeah. perhaps. Yeah. Right? So, those are real concerns. Yes. Um, and then when it comes to animals, uh, there's research being done to make hornless cattle. Because if you have to transport cattle, then their horns actually take up a lot of space. So it's easier to pack <laughs> them in if they're hornless. Uh, increasing milk yields. Um, there's no idea of a cuboidal tomato anywhere? Not yet. Okay. Uh, so one of tomato and potato together or something like that is on the cards. And... Uh, Canada recently uh, has approved uh, one of the first, uh, I think it's the first uh, genetically engineered animal for consumption mm. where they've engineered salmons to grow in uh, a fraction of the lifespan, which makes uh, farming them a lot more uh, economically efficient and feasible. And we have already done things like this through non-genetic editing means, right? I mean, we have hormones and various stimuli to everything from chickens to even milk producing cows mm -hmm. so that we get better yields. And even for plants, when we give gibberellins and other things to increase like mango growths. Right. We, so, we trigger yeah. um, fruiting and flowering yeah. and lots of things. So this is just the natural next step then. Yeah. Uh, and the thing is that you can look at it as a problem perspective. Like, so malaria, for example, that Madhav was talking about, you know, curing sickle cell anemia, what kind of effects it will have on malaria. There's a gigantic project underway to uh, genetically edit mosquitoes so that they don't carry the malarial parasites anymore. So mosquitoes have this thing called gene drive, uh, which is basically if a subpopulation of mosquitoes uh, shows a certain kind of genes, then eventually the entire population will. Uh, so there are two kind of projects ongoing. One is to st actually stop the mosquito from harboring the malaria parasites itself. The second is to use the gene drive so that mosquitoes don't mate and produce any more mosquitoes. Okay. Uh, which means you'll effectively kill out all the mosquito population. Uh, but then the question is, what will bats eat? So these are the kind of things that we are looking at. Um, there's um, one project in Harvard which is looking at trying to resurrect the mammoth, mm -hmm. which has been extinct for a while. Uh, and there's another one who is trying to uh, genetically edit the Asian elephant so that they can survive in Siberia. 
so that we can all transport all the elephants there so that the humans can live here in peace and there's also a research uh, being done on uh, saving bee populations because mm-hmm. bee populations are dwindling world over and they sort of a lot of agricultural economies and processes are reliant on bees for pollination and uh, it's a big worry and a lot of research is being done to see whether genetic research can sort of halt this and trend. that is quite exciting because you know how they're doing this so they found that bees that keep their hives clean live longer so they're trying to identify the genes of hygienic bees and trying to put <laughs> them across into all bees so that we'll have cleaner nests if we can figure this out with human swachh bharat has been achieved probably put it my husband next <laughs> <laughs> So, from household problems to Swachh Bharat gene editing may be the solution. Shambhavi, is any research taking place on the germline editing front? There have been a lot of reports uh, with embryos. So, we know that they can be edited using CRISPR. Uh, but there is so much ethical ambiguity uh, about using embryos that there is still a debate ongoing in a, a lot of countries on whether it should be allowed or not. India, for one, has banned germline editing. So, China actually pioneered the embryo work. because uh, till then there was still an ongoing debate about whether embryos should be used uh, in germline editing or not uh, but while the world was still talking about it china went ahead and did it the uk also uh, has done some research on uh, embryonic work but they have limitations it can only be uh, less than 14 days old from what we understand there's no gene editing therapies out in the market in india though some work has started at cmc vellore and narayana netralia So we may see some therapies for blood disorders and eye disorders in the coming years. There's also some ongoing work on muscular dystrophy. But when we're thinking about governing gene editing applications, how should we be thinking about it? So there are two applications of gene editing per se, right? One is um, understanding what genes do, like I've referred to before, the basic and most useful uh, application of gene editing itself. Um, so we want scientists to use it to understand how genes function also the technology that delivers a gene editing is not perfect so we want to do more research on that so there is uh, for basic science there's a strong case of uh, why we need to do more research um, and probably we need sort of an enabling environment even for companies and startups who want to create these tools right yes, forget getting yes. into therapies yes yes and the second application is actually public release uh so where we deliver this out to patients even as some therapy as some therapies so there are two different applications uh two different intentions of actually using gene editing and that's why there's a need to regulate it separately uh one is the intention just to purely understand the science of it and second is to apply it to people and in this case at least with stem cells we have already seen quackery happening uh, there was an incident in north india uh, at a hospital where there was a clinical trial going on to resurrect brain dead people using stem cells obviously okay. once icmr got wind of it uh, they actually shut it down but that went on so for a long time so this is complete quackery it was complete quackery uh, there is no published record about this actually even working um similarly with the crispr technology we see a lot of biohackers online who are trying to sell kits that allow people to do gene editing and there's a lot of glamour around it right you know right. uh, especially if you see in india if you say oh white skin blue eyes uh, i can give that to you you just order online you know that and it doesn't work at the moment because we simply do not have enough understanding of how it works i mean just seeing the size of the fair and lovely cream exactly. market tells exactly. us that people want stuff yeah but at the same time uh 
we need to be sort of wary of what kind of regulations we have uh, because uh, as uh, shambhavi said the industry is uh, still in its nascent stages especially with understanding of gene functions uh, so we want research to happen because the only way we can have better uh, gene therapies is through more research so whatever regulations uh, are there should be the minimum uh, level to sort of mitigate and manage the risks all right uh, thanks madhav thanks shambhavi for joining me today thanks, thanks. you're welcome As you can tell from this episode gene editing has immense potential for human therapies and for solutions in both healthcare and in agriculture. Gene editing applications also carry significant risks and also have serious ethical challenges that we need to overcome as a society. Currently, India lacks a cohesive governance framework around gene editing and genetic engineering. Good governance and regulations are needed that can both enable good innovation as well as keep the quacks and charlatans at bay. Do read Shambhavi and Madhav's discussion document A Framework for Gene Editing on the Takshashila Institution website. It's also linked below in the podcast description. That's it for this episode of the Pragati Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions, you can mail it to podcast at thinkpragati.com. Before we wrap up, we'd like to tell you that we're going on a year-end break. And I hope you get to take a year-end break too. So there will be no new episode of the Pragati Podcast during the last week of December 2017. and the 25th episode will come out on Thursday January 4th 2018 you can of course catch up on all our previous episodes on thinkpragati.com ibmpodcast.com or your favorite podcasting app till then have a merry christmas and a happy new year Good evening ladies and gentlemen this is your captain speaking sorry to say but there's been a slight delay due to the apocalypse having suddenly begun as you can see there's death destruction and chaos taking place all around us but don't you worry food and drinks will be served shortly and i would recommend checking out IVM podcasts to get some of your favorite indian podcasts we'll keep you going till this whole thing blows over thank you